Our speaker this afternoon is best-selling author and world traveler Thad Carhart, whose undergraduate degree from Yale was in anthropology. At one time an executive with Apple Computer, he is now living the dream as a freelance writer based in Paris. His memoir, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank, was a bestseller. It certainly reminded me to admit to my mom that she was right. I regret playing hooky from the piano lessons. Um, He's also written Across the Endless River, a historical novel based on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Today, he's going to speak about his latest book, Finding Fontainebleau, another memoir about his life in France, which Publishers Weekly calls um, American casualness and exuberance meet French formality and grandeur in this lively, perceptive memoir. And he also was reviewed in yesterday's style section of the New York Times, which you can find in our newspaper reading room if you'd like to read it. But better yet, you can hear the author talk right now. Please join me in welcoming Thad Carhart. Thank you. Thank you you and good afternoon. Thank you all for welcoming me here. I had the good fortune to read to an Athenaeum crowd uh, for Piano Shop. It wasn't here because your building was being refurbished. And I can see what a terrific job they did. I visited before, but I've never presented here. It was at the Boston Public Library and was quite a, quite a good crowd and a responsive one. Um, an American Boy in France is the subtitle of my book, Finding Fontainebleau. I'll talk to you uh, briefly about that first. That was me in 1954 when we moved. Hey kids, we're going to France. Consider, if you will, what that might have sounded like if your father came home and made that declaration, as mine did. Uh, It wasn't an invitation, it was just what was going to happen. I was four, so for me it was the new world of uh, moving. My dad was an Air Force officer, he worked at the Pentagon, and this was my first hosting with the family. I'm the fourth of five children, so I was one of the little ones who just took it in and said, okay, we're going, as we did. In moving to Fontainebleau, it's hard to express just how different the world looked to us, uh, and certainly to my parents as well as the children, going from suburban Virginia to a small, relatively provincial town south of Paris. Perhaps some of you know it's not, it's less than an hour from Paris, but especially in the 50s, it might as well have been a different world. It's uh, what the British call a castle town. It's uh, a chateau town, if you will, in France. There's, there are other things, but the chateau dominates the landscape as uh, nothing else does. So we moved there in the summer of 1954. The book talks about that in some detail. It is a memoir, but it's principally about France, I hope, and not about me or the Carhartt family. It's meant to be a way of visiting parts of France that are not otherwise accessible. We might as well have been earthlings on Mars. Honestly, everything was new. The language, of course, principal uh, difference, but also the roads, the cars, the food, the buildings, all of it. There were some fixed points in that landscape. Uh, First of all, the chateau, it was there. We lived uh, not far from it, but it was also my dad's office. Uh, He was a staff officer on the 
NATO Command headquarters that was headquartered in the chateau itself. There was a French marshal, Alphonse Juin, who was the commander, but my dad was the liaison officer from the US. There were several of them. So that was part of the landscape. We also uh, moved into a, I'd, I'd have to call it, it's a maison de maître is what it's called in, in French, a, a mansion um, that my dad rented. But it was kind of a claptrap mansion. It was built in the 19th century under the Second Empire, uh, Napoleon III, and then Napoleon by a court official. But then Napoleon III and all the court officials went away, and there wasn't anybody to live in a great big 20-room uh, house with an acre of land surrounded by uh, a stone wall. It went through successive uh, iterations as a, uh, an auberge, which is basically an inn, and then uh, we found later, and by happenstance, as often happens in France, particularly around the war, that um, it had in fact been requisitioned by the Germans during the war and was a residence for uh, German officers during the war. So it had a, not so much a checkered past, but a varied past. And then along came the American family in the early 50s who moved right in and uh, made it our own for three long years and very agreeable years, I should say. I'll just give you a short flavor for what it was like for my mom in particular, and my parents, uh, to move into that arc of a house so different from our suburban house in Virginia. Painters and tradesmen also showed up irregularly, expecting to be paid for work my parents had not requested. After some initial resistance, my mom and dad acquiesced. Adopting Mademoiselle de Chenville's reasoning, she was the real estate agent, that the maintenance was usually essential, they did good work, and they were paid very little. But it meant that for those first weeks, the house had the feel of a film set where a new character might walk in off the street and announce, in effect, I'm in the movie. Returning from an errand in those first days, my mother was startled by an older man in the Grand Salon, which is the principal living room, doing a strange sort of gliding dance across the bare wood floor. Was he drunk? Some daytime prowler on a bender? Then she noticed the large brushes affixed to the soles of his shoes, his movements displaying a rhythmic pattern as he circled slowly, smiling all the while. What are you doing in my living room with brushes on your feet? Was far beyond her meager French. So she said the next best thing. Bonjour, monsieur. Bonjour, madame. This is how she met Monsieur Jérôme, le frotteur, literally the rubber, since rubbing and brushing is how parquet floors are maintained. So that was part of the new landscape. We didn't have frotteur or anything like in Virginia. I doubt that anyone did or does, although I may be, be wrong in that. Um, that summer, my parents also made a decision that was significant for all of us. We were going to French school, not uh, English language school. And so I'd say for me, it was among my siblings. My younger sister was a toddler and didn't go to school at all in France, but the four of us uh, older did. And since it was my first beginning of school, I went to maternelle, which is essentially uh, nursery school or, or kindergarten, I suppose you'd say, um, preschool. And uh, I hadn't read or write. I read a little bit of English, but I hadn't been schooled in it it came at me in French. And so it was intense, but it wasn't, it wasn't surprising to me. It was just my beginning of my schooling, uh, the social landscape included. 
going to French school. It was trickier for my elder siblings, as you can imagine, because they had been to school in Virginia, and they were parachuted into another school, but it was a different language. They managed to cope. It's amazing what young children can do, but I think their, their row was a little harder. They, they, they have said so more than once, <laughs> not complaining, but uh, I believe them. So it was, in the home, it was always English. We always spoke English among uh, the family. But the minute you went outside the door, it was French. French in school, French with townspeople, uh, friends. Uh, so it was this dual reality, which didn't strike as, uh, it became normal, which a lot of people have had this experience, of course. It, it wasn't something, particularly at a child's level, you don't look at the abstraction or, or consider uh, what you're going to do about it. You just do it. Um, I'll give you just one short paragraph for that, too, just because this was a part of the landscape that didn't resemble anything, not just because it was new to me, but my siblings said the same. Each morning began with a strange ritual that I had never before imagined, much less seen. On the first day of school, a girl with long brown hair was given a huge wine bottle. In France, where every wine size of wine bottle has its own special name, this one was called a Jéroboam and held three liters. A boy with thick, wire-rimmed glasses was given a folded hand towel. The teacher whispered her directions to them. Then the two students proceeded down the aisles of desks, pouring ink deliberately and cautiously from the wine bottle into each of our inkwells. Any spills immediately wiped up with the towel. We were then told to prepare a plume, one of the old-style pens with removable nibs that had to be dipped continually in ink. So began my introduction to the French art of penmanship still taken in France to be one of the key indicators of one's personality. You know, I'll just take a, an opportunity to show you. I think Viking did a terrific job with the package of this book. And one of the things they did was they included on what are called end papers uh, m copies of my original cahier from this penmanship. <laughs> on one side, and at the top, you, of course, see the, the teacher's perfect handwriting. It's really a form of... of uh, calligraphy almost, and then we would strain, all of us did exactly the same exercises, the cahier du soir, uh, and then or, <laughs> you can see the results. They were, they were fitful at best, but that's, that was part of the landscape in France. I must say, um, preschool was essentially uh, reading and writing and sums, very rudimentary sums. But my mother, who was learning French, she took lessons, but she also admitted later that she went through, I was the beginner, and so she had these beginning lessons, and she would go through, not to learn calcul, arithmetic, but to see what the vocabulary was like. Uh, and she said, you know, in those days, it really struck me initially that the, the reasoning and the examples they used for arithmetic, standard reason, were exceptionally French. If my uncle comes to dinner with two bottles of wine, and <laughs> My parents have three bottles of wine in the cave, in the wine cellar. How many bottles of wine will there then be in the wine cellar? <laughs> but I must say, as a, as a four-year-old, uh, it made reason, it sense to me because in, in Arlington, which is where we lived in Virginia, we had milk delivered to the back um, door in these... That's what they did. They delivered these big glass bottles of milk. The dairy truck came along and you got your milk. For, everybody did. And we used also in France, we had, this was another thing that came with the house, 
nobody asked, wine was delivered to the back door every week. And <laughs> it was Arlington milk, Fontainebleau wine, why not? Two bottles of rosé, two bottles of white, and two bottles of red. My parents were not big drinkers, but they did have to entertain. And so you, this was just part of the, the picture. So if we looked like, or rather if we felt like Martians, um, or perhaps Earthlings on Mars, I think is, is what I said before, we must have looked like Martians to the French uh, in many ways, a, a big family. There had been Americans in Fontainebleau since 1949, and uh, we weren't the first by any means, but a big American family living right next to the chateau. And I think the most distinctive thing about us, um, many of our neighbors told us later, was our car. In those days, the government sent all your household goods, but they also sent your car overseas. It's hard to imagine, um, but everyone did it, so they're American cars. We didn't have a fancy car, but we had a big car. It was a Chevy wagon, and it was what was, the model was called a Woody. And anyone who knows, these had great big blocks of wood attached on the sides and on the back, which you did not see on French roads. So <laughs> aside from the fact that it was twice the size of any Citroën or Renault, um, it just was bizarre. And one of our neighbors told us as much later, he said, vous conduisez une grande boîte d'allumettes. You're driving a big matchbox. Because in those days, matchboxes were made from strips of wood. And that's what we looked like to them. So it's only fair to say we what do they say? Ça ne passe pas inaperçu. You do not go unnoticed. The double negative in French. Um, so that was, and that is the heart of the book, um, that memoir piece. But I've also interleaved parts of uh, my own return to France with my wife and two infant children 30 years later, in the late 80s. Uh, we moved to Paris. And it was the occasion for me, after some while, I had a I didn't return out of nostalgia or sentimentality. I got a job there, and I needed a job, and it was a good one. Uh, but I was qualified for the job because I spoke fluent French, so that it was clearly part of the equation. Um, but after some years there, I, I wrote my first book, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank, and I became interested uh, at about that time in the history of Fontainebleau. Of course, here I was back as an adult, and I could look at Fontainebleau in a new way. It's still only less than an hour from Paris. We'd drive down and spend some time with the kids, not just showing them the chateau, but there were lovely parks in the Forêt de Fontainebleau. The forest is, is famous and famously used by Parisians as a, a kind of pressure valve for getting out of the city. And what I discovered, what I couldn't have known, I knew as a child that it was a splendid palace and it was a big place and all the rest of it. We did took people there, as one would, who were visiting. But I understood and read up about its history. And the reality of Fontainebleau is quite exceptional. It's the largest assemblage of French architecture and style in all of France, the largest and most varied, I should say. It's also one of the very oldest. There's been an unbroken line of kings from 1137 to Napoleon III, who left in 1870 when he lost the Franco-Prussian War. But every king of France used Fontainebleau, usually for two months out of the year with his court uh, for hunting in the fall. What did that mean? It mean, means that all of them built parts of it, not every single monarch, but pretty much. They left something. Sometimes it was a room, sometimes it was a wing, a chapel, a courtyard. But there's an, uh, it, I must say, it doesn't go back to 1137. There, there are a few walls 
from that area. But it mostly uh, dates from the early Renaissance and, and right through to the 19th century. Fontainebleau is 50 years older than the Louvre. It's 500 years older than Versailles. And what I learned was that this is an exceptional place that is being restored. That was uh, a fanciful idea to me, and yet when I researched it and found that there was a whole crew working on the restoration at all times, I asked for an introduction and met Patrick Ponceau, a gentleman who is the chief architect of Fontainebleau. Every monument and uh, great site in France has a chief architect, as well it should. Their job is an interesting one because they don't just maintain uh, and restore, which they do with their, their colleagues, curators and restorers and painters and every sort of craftsman. It's also their job to interpret and to open these sites for the public in ways that we do with museums and some historical sites. I think Boston, of course, has one of the richest traditions in America than, uh, that you would find. So this is not perhaps unusual to you. What, what was striking to me was that there was this consensus about restoring. They spend a lot of money, and I mean a lot of time and human uh, talent on this. And when you consider that the political landscape of France is different from our own, and yet we're both uh, democratic republics, it's interesting to consider that theirs was a, a tradition from the monarchy, and this is one of the greatest expressions of, of the, the string of monarchs. Versailles is one thing, and it's a very uh, striking thing, but it's one, essentially it's Louis XIV, you know, Louis XIV who, who built this. And it's easy, in a sense, to associate it with him and him only. Fontainebleau has a vocation and a, an association with the string of monarchs. Well, let's remember the French know their history, and they know about the monarchy, and they know where it came from, uh, and how they got uh, beyond that. And it was a difficult path. There's a sense afoot sometimes from people uh, who don't know a lot about French history that there was the French Revolution, they got rid of the king, and then they had a republic. But of course it was much more complicated than that. And they spent the better part of the 19th century uh, getting rid of the, the monarchs who came back. There was the Bourbon Restoration, and then there was uh, the Orléaniste. Uh, who was it? Talleyrand said, um, when the, the two younger brothers of Louis, XIV, or Louis XVI, who had been executed during the Revolution, came back after Napoleon, and he said, um, what was it, Louis XVIII and Charles X. And he, he had been the minister to everybody, essentially, the Ancien Regime and Napoleon, and then these two new Bourbon kings. And he said, they forgot nothing, they learned nothing. And that was the history of France, uh, in, in a sense. They, the French are nothing if not resilient. But what it meant was they fashioned and forged what they, they hold dear, and particularly, it's la république, the republic. They're on their fifth. It's easy to be cynical about that. But in fact, by the time they got rid of Napoleon III in 1870, it was the third republic, Jean Jaurès, and just the, the great uh, breakthrough. And they aren't going back. Uh, the interesting thing to me about working with, and Patrick Ponceau invited me to sit in on his, his meetings with his colleagues, was to see how non-controversial this was. And what they do is they restore to, with great detail 
what would have been built by all these monarchs, and whether it's a room or, or a theater, a, a great deal of uh, attention goes into it. But there's no, there's respect for these accomplishments, but there's no reverence for the monarchy. There's no, it's not uh, uh, disrespect either. It's just understood that this is our history. This is our shared history. It's the word patrimoine, which matters to the French, shared inheritance. And that's what his program and that of his colleagues is about. That is part of the book I try to describe, not just uh, some of the history of the monarchs, which some of them are quite interesting characters, but what they left and what and how it's being restored today. And so interspersed in the memoir parts of the book are these accounts of uh, monarchs who had, had left something. Let me read just a brief portion about their endless projects. The Chateau has 1,500 rooms. The roof is five acres of <laughs> expanse, most of it covered with hand-split uh, tiles, um, slate tiles. So you can imagine, there's, uh, you got roof problems, how about five acres of roof? <laughs> and I, honestly, that was one of the first things Patrick Ponsonal said to me, he said, you know, you have to start with the roof, because nothing else, if the roof leaks, any homeowner knows this, you might as well not bother with what's underneath. So they had, I think it was eight million euros to put the roof in okay shape, so they could go into, and this is over decades. Um, now they're, it's stabilized and they work on different projects. They try to have something that's representative. It'll certainly never be entirely, and it's not intended that it should be entirely restored, but they want to have representative sections and rooms uh, that show the success, successive uh, eras of French architecture and French style. So Marie Antoinette, who stayed there every fall with the court, and was very glad to get away from Versailles, uh, apparently, as who would not be, um, left two boudoirs. Um, she had the boudoir d'argent, it's got silver walls, and then the later one was the boudoir turc, the Turkish boudoir. And I'll just uh, read you a brief description of what that site looked like. In this case, the Turkish appellation referred to the decorative elements that were meant to capture a certain fascination for the Orient, a style of exoticism that swept French interiors a dozen years before the revolution. What better style for a queen's private room than the Orientalist fantasy that was both opulent and mildly daring? It is sometimes difficult to recall amidst the splendor of a pleasure palace like Fontainebleau that a revolution shook France, all of Europe really, to its core. There were kings on both sides of that divide but matters were never again the same after Louis says, uh, XVI was deposed and executed in 1793. It took the better part of the 19th century for the Republic to gain ascendancy. The Third Republic that followed Napoleon III's fall marked the definitive end of monarchs and the start of a fully constitutional form of government that has persisted. Fontainebleau is thus a place imbued with the history of France, Renaissance art and architecture, the frivolities of Bourbon aristocrats, Napoleonic intrigues, but it is also an expression of the Republic's power to appropriate the apparatus of royal legitimacy and make it its own. Its role in teaching citizens about the past is ongoing and taken very seriously. The restoration of this boudoir is part of that program. It opened, it just opened uh, recently to the public. You, it, it takes small groups. You can go there, but you, if you do, don't quote me without 
uh, making a reservation because they only take groups of 10. It's one room, but it's extraordinarily uh, restored. And it's not so much, oh, Marie Antoinette, this or that, it's associated with her person and her historical personage. But you do get a sense of what a, a place, what a different time, what a bubble world, in a sense, even at Fontainebleau. And the, the pathos, as well as the, the strangeness of building these two exquisite rooms. They were only 10 years apart. One was offered by uh, Louis XVI to Marie Antoinette, and the other was fashioned by her with her architect. I think, didn't anybody think this might have been a bad idea? With the, it, it just strikes you, which is, of course, exactly what they want to do. There's no political agenda as such, but it comes clear from the place and the way it's presented. That, too, is part of the book. Finally, I'd just like to talk a bit about the, what I call the in-between world of living between English and French, the US and France. I lived in France this time for 27 years. But I'm not French, and I'm not trying to be French, and I am in no danger of being taken for French. I speak uh, fluent French, as I should. Uh, but that just came with the territory. But anyone who has lived overseas for part of, or in another language, in another culture for part of his or her childhood, knows the sort of magnetic pull that can exert over time. And so it's not a coincidence that when we went back to France, and me as an adult making the decision, uh, it was something that I learned that I hadn't really realized before. Living in France as a foreigner has different aspects, different demands as an adult, and, and different rewards. It was, uh, it's not a coincidence that my first book was about France. Piano Shop was solidly uh, about a narrative of pianos, but yes, about Paris. And its underpinnings are all French. So I don't intend this book to be a, a, a sequel or that dreadful word, prequel. But I do find it. Um, important to reveal what I can about my experience of the French and the parts of France that are off, off the beaten track. And not just that, but otherwise inaccessible to outsiders. France is not an open book. Not many places are, but I think uh, more than other places, it takes a bit of doing. It starts with the language, but then it also goes with human contact. And I wouldn't say the French are standoffish, but they do take their time. And I'm lucky enough to have been there uh, for a while to have some access to those uh, aspects of France. But uh, this in-between area that I would call, I've actually, it's where the genesis of the title comes from is finding Fontainebleau is, in my mind, trying to find a, a, an equilibrium, a point of balance between my experience in France as an American, not just an American boy, but an American adult now, like many people, uh, in between these two languages and these two cultures. When we were kids, there were aspects of this. You live between these places, uh, not just because home is English and, and everywhere else is French, but you try to make sense of it. Uh, the first thing when we were kids that I can recall was um, rock and roll. What else? In the 50s. And for my elder siblings, and uh, there was a fellow by the name of Bill Haley. Bill Haley in the comments. Um, trust me, there was, and he was a big deal. He was the first big uh, American rock star who was popular with the French. 
That's not as important as the guy who came along less than a year later, a guy by the name of Elvis Presley. And that changed everything. It w the French loved Elvis. They still do love Elvis, probably more than a lot of Americans, and know Elvis, as they would. And um, that was just part of the landscape for my elder siblings. I was younger, and I had a, another fascination, Davy Crockett. And <laughs> the Davy Crockett um, of France was not so different from the Davy Crockett of elsewhere. Let me just read a short passage, if I may, about how Davy Crockett came to be in France. The Davy Crockett craze caught on in France as it did all over the world. Young boys clamored for coonskin caps. I was inseparable from mine for months. And they played in simulated versions of the frontier buckskin costume. We brandished Davy Crockett toy rifles and hunting knives when we weren't reading Davy Crockett comic books. Parents everywhere, including France, were pestered for the board game, the trading cards, even the bubble gum. Some of the French kids at school had bits of paraph paraphernalia, and the ballad of Davy Crockett was a constant refrain, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, etc. Never mind the Marshall Plan, never mind the Berlin Airlift, never mind NATO itself. At a kid level, this was the first palpable evidence I had that it was cool to be American in Europe. Davy's movie incarnation, Fess Parker, had an initial hiccup in France that no one foresaw. As it happens, the word Fess, pronounced like the actor's given name, Fess, means buttock in French. <laughs> Fess Parker plays Davy Crockett resonated for the French as Butt Parker. <laughs> it's true. Immediately, his name in French was changed to Fier Parker, meaning Proud Parker. And so it has remained through all the iterations and reruns dear to the French. Of course, these are superficial and, in a sense, uh, silly uh, instances of what I call in-between, but they were real for a child. As an adult and with my own children, I've seen some of these same, well, I've actually experienced myself, my, ch my children who, who did the entire French system before they came to university here in America um, are much more adept and subtle about their understanding of the, the resonances and overlaps. Uh, just to give you one or two examples. Usually it comes at me in terms of language, and it's often French friends who ask me, because I'm the English speaker, can you tell me? C'est quoi go, uh, you go girl? C'est quoi? What is you go girl? And, and I had not heard you go girl before. It was just, if you're away from America for, we come back once or twice a year, but the beauty and the suppleness and the rapidity of English to adapt and to fashion new phrases is extraordinary. It's certainly much faster than French. And I had no, I, they wanted the grammar of you go girl. <laughs> so it, we ended up with, it was an expression, no, an exhortation positive pour une jeune fille. <laughs> it's a, 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 a hortatory expression of, of positive encouragement to a young girl. You go girl. Okay, <laughs> that's not grammar, it's just a descriptive, but another one was, well, just one more, my bad. Now, my bad, I'm not here to take a, a position. I just, when you're not in the milieu and you're not speaking English uh, in, in regularly, certainly not American uh, English, and you never heard my bad, it just, I mean, where's, the, where's the noun? I don't know. And <laughs> my bad what? Actually, initially I thought there was my back. They're complaining about their back. It's like, no, it's my bad. And so that, too, is a bit... Uh, Superficial, but, but real. What's not superficial, and I'd like to just leave you with this, is the sense that when you live, and many people have had this ex experience, I think increasing numbers, really, with uh, access. It's not necessarily fluency, but access 
and association with a, a language and a, another culture, um, there are ways in which that is rich that can't be uh, counted uh, across many, many different aspects of, of life daily and, and long term. For me, it came as a surprise when I write, writing this book that, of course, you take stock and you realize, A, I was extremely lucky, and B, it's an ongoing form of, of luck. Why is that? Because it makes you question the world in a different way. As I say, I'm not French, but I do think I, I don't understand the French, but I certainly understand how they don't see things entirely the way we do. I think the more interesting thing, which struck me, is that they are so much more like us than not like us, that we always focus on the now, they're hard to get along with, and they're difficult, and they're, they don't like our foreign policy, whatever the, the uh, issue happens to be. But in fact, just politically, uh, we're two great republics that, who have fashioned themselves out of a revolution, very different revolutions, very different histories, but have an interesting appreciation of the past that is from that experience, different from a lot of other countries. And so I find it a, a rich and uh, special place to be, and I hope you'll find some of that same aspect in visiting it when you read my book. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.